Here's your almanac for tilling the cultural soil with the conversations we plan with humor, faith, and wisdom. Here's your hosts, Dr. Peter Kapsner, Carmen LeBurge, and I'm Nat. Welcome to The Till. Welcome to this episode of The Till. I am here with Peter Kapsner and Nat Becker. Welcome, gentlemen. Great to be here with you again, Carmen. Did you guys have a good Thanksgiving? So, I mean, we're the week after Thanksgiving as we're recording this right now. I was actually in Scotland where they don't celebrate Thanksgiving. So you got to at least give me some vicarious celebration here. What did you do, Carmen, for Thanksgiving? So uh, our our part of the family was in charge of the pies. And so we spent Thanksgiving morning making all of the pies that were then devoured later in the day. So there were two pumpkin, a pecan, a peach, a blueberry, uh, a cherry, a blackberry. I think that's all. Does that sound like six or seven? That Something sounds like right that. in that neighborhood. But all fruit, mm-hmm. was that mm-hmm. all fruit pies? There was no like French silk, no banana cream, nothing like that? No. no. I've never had peach pie. That sounds amazing. <gasps> Okay, so peach pie was made with our peaches from our trees. Whoa, so the peach pie un- was particularly wow. good. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very, very good. Very good. good. Nat, what'd you do for uh, Thanksgiving? Uh, I worked Thanksgiving morning, uh, kept the station alive. And then uh, <laughs> after that, made it just in time for pie over at my family's house. So What kind of pie? Um, there was pecan. There was pumpkin. There was probably, um, there was some couple of like ice cream pies, which was like new to me. I was like, whoa, it's like ice cream in a pan. I was like, I'll take it. Um, and then... I don't know. Maybe there was more before I came. Who knows? Yeah. We was did. there turkey? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the next generation, thankfully, Carmen, still celebrates with turkey. So this is the we, turkey we've done our job. We passed it on to the next generation. So there you have it. I know. Okay. Gosh, our work here is done. Oh, there was the usual, and there was corn bake, and I did eat it, right? Like, you know. There was none of this, like, crazy southern waffle stuff, though. I was a little disappointed, but it's okay. I wasn't expecting it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I telling got, you the day the day after Thanksgiving when you can put the stuffing in the waffle right. pan, the waffle and just press it and it's crispy on the outside and it's still that delicious juicy dressing on the inside and you oh. put your leftover turkey on <laughs> it with the gravy. I'm telling you it's just like that is awesome. That is awesome. I, I can get my head around that for sure. Uh, on that we did nothing for Thanksgiving. I mean, we just we were overseas and they didn't celebrate. Were you so. thankful? Well, I you was, know, Thanksgiving yes. is every day and everywhere Peter. Yeah, okay, thank you. Thank you for spiritualizing <laughs> the turkey uh, here on this episode. <laughs> but yeah, I was thankful to be with my family. I really was. It had been 30 days since I'd seen him there overseas and we had a great time uh just that day just being together. So yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's really nice. Yeah, it was. That's really nice. Okay, Peter, lead us uh, lead yeah. us off today. We are, um, today's episode of The Till, we are going to talk about the way that John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus, but also just the preparations in our own lives in terms of receiving Christ. Yeah, I love that story, Carmen, of John the Baptist and preparing the way, especially it's coming in the context of 400 years of almost complete silence where Israel had gotten used to at the very least having a prophet speak uh, on behalf of God. So they had God's voice regularly leading them as a people. And with the death of the prophet Malachi, they headed into what is sort of known as the intertestamental period or the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And they hadn't heard the voice of God. There was uh, potentially, at least history records, a time that Hanukkah celebrates in the Jewish faith where as they are fighting uh, against some of the secular authorities of that day that God apparently kept the lamps lit in the temple for days upon days upon days when otherwise they would have run out of oil. But historically, uh, the idea of God's voice being part of their journey as a nation, we're talking 10, 15 generations of people had not heard God's voice. And all of a sudden, 
this guy comes out of the wilderness. He's part of what was called the Essene community. So he had lived in caves and, and uh, was sort of there to be one of the caretakers of God's generational work to pass on to the next generation. And he comes out and he starts saying, prepare the way of the Lord, meaning that not only is God now not silent with the people, but the, the, the message that's coming isn't just this, the simple prophetic messages of the Old Testament, is that the king is coming, the Messiah is near. And so when he's saying prepare a way for the Lord, he's using language that uh, the, the people of that time would have understood. That was the language of when a king is coming. And so if you are in your country and you're going to be visited by a king, what they did is, because uh, then John the Baptist says, make your path straight for the coming of the king. And if you're back in that context, what they did is they literally, on the path that the king was going to take, they would take all sorts of time the day and weeks before to pull all the stones out of the path to make the way straight, that it would be a place that there'd be nothing that would hinder or encumber the coming of the king. And so you have that that physical representation of preparing the way of a king. Also then John's message being, it's time to repent. It's time to remove all of those stones in our heart that encumber us from the way of the king that being Jesus coming into our lives in that way. It's a very powerful metaphor. And I can't imagine what it was like in the nation of Israel at that time to have God once again speak up and have that be the message that the king is near. So I feel like there there are these 30 years, 30-ish years, um, between the announcement of the birth of John and then the birth of Jesus six months later. Right. Um, then there are these this 30-year period of time. I, I feel like at least the people in Zachariah and Elizabeth's community, um, they they definitely have a head start on all of this. I mean, they... Um, if we, if we take Luke's historical account seriously and, and I have no reason to doubt that Luke really did his due diligence on this in describing Zachariah and Elizabeth and describing, um, the kind of people they were, their, uh, their lineage, um, as Levites. I mean, they, these are, this is the priestly family. This is the, uh, generational heritage of, um, of people who have been keeping the law, they're described as righteous and godly, um, and and God sends John to be their son, maybe in no small measure because they're already old and they won't suffer the um, the deep deep grief of having a son who is ultimately going to be beheaded um, because he is faithful to God and not to the kingdoms mm-hmm. of this world. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I just I feel like in terms of the preparation related to the person of John the Baptist. God is sending John the Baptist in um, in a way that God doesn't really just send anybody else. I mean, this this is the appointed person for a very uh, explicit task, and that was preparing the way of Jesus. How did John prepare the way of Jesus? And then talk uh, talk with us about what happens when Jesus comes to John right at the Jordan and that encounter. Yeah, boy, those are powerful stories in the biblical text. And and I, I think it's interesting that John obviously had such a power and authority about him that for at least a bit, the people mistook him for the Messiah himself. And John had to clarify and say, no, there's one coming whose sandals I'm not even worthy to sort of deal with. And, and so the power that was represented there and his message really was one, Carmen, of repentance. 
And uh, we're in this Advent season, and uh, I know as a family, we often take time during this week where we read this John the Baptist story and think, so how do we prepare the way for the king to come into our lives and and, and our hearts? To remove the stones means to repent, because if you are in a place where you've untethered yourself from God and, and are living some kind of life outside of that, it's going to stand in the way of the king coming and, and residing in your life and in your heart and in your space. And and so that was John's primary message was that it was time for the nation of Israel to repent and to, and to create that space again, where it's possible for the king to reside in that way. And so we actually, sometimes in our family, we'll take stones and just actual physical stones and we will write down on the stones, maybe in a Sharpie or something, those things of which during this week, as we prepare again in this Advent season, what can we write down and put on these stones? And that's representative and symbolic of what John was doing and inviting the people to. And then that led to the the form of repentance that you were just uh, referencing, which was it was time to come down to the rivers and be baptized at this point as a powerful marking point of repentance. Nat, how about you? Yeah. What are some yeah. ways that you you prepare? Oh, mm. well, I have a question before that, actually. <laughs> so, uh, reading through this, you know, on a regular... Can he have yearly... questions, Nat? Do, uh, do we allow this, Carmen? Can Nat have questions on it's this podcast? It's an interactive conversation. Inter- <laughs> oh, this is an interactive it's conversation. It's called a conversation, Peter. Uh, that really helps. Yeah. Okay, Nat, I guess we'll, we'll accept it. Well, and I, I don't know that I have the authority to, um, you know, <laughs> teach without, uh, without my doctorates yet. Um, but... <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't help, let me tell you. <laughs> well, okay, so, you know, you read through and like, I get why John the Baptist, uh, you know, his sort of his role building up to Jesus and, and what that, you know, uh, did socially and, and sort of building up uh, the expectation and, you know, it, it just really built up towards Jesus coming and he was preparing the way. That makes sense. So my question is, how does that uh, apply to tilling the cultural soil with the people around us. And you've touched briefly on this, like with the stones of remembrance. <laughs> but, you know, like I'm not prepping in 30 years necessarily for Jesus to walk through my streets, right? Like, right. I don't know. How am I tilling the soil? It's a great question. Well, I guess I hope, I guess I hope you're, that you and I and every other Christian, um, that we are always uh, tilling the soil in the conversations that we're having with others that the ways in which we are living should be as distinct from the culture as John the Baptist was distinct from the culture of his day. Now, that does not mean that we're going to live in the wilderness and eat locusts and wild honey. It does mean <laughs> that there may be some things that we do not participate in that are popular in our culture or with um, you know, our peer group. It may be that we withdraw from some of the things that the culture is embracing. It may be that some of the ways in which um, your peers engage in revelry this time of year— you choose to not engage in, even if you're present in those situations, you may may be choosing to um, live in a way that is aligned with what you know is God's best versus, you know, the ways of the world. That is a testimony. People at some point will ask why you're not doing what everybody else is doing. And, you know, and you can say, my my heart is governed by a different king. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's going to provoke a, a, a follow-up question at some point. Um, you, you know, it, it may provoke mockery in the immediate, but let me just tell you that mockery in the immediate is no big deal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as you're talking, Carmen, it just called to mind, again, when John the Baptist, when you mentioned that he removed himself, and I was talking earlier here in the episode about the idea that he was part of what was called the Essene community. There was different communities of Jews. There was the Pharisees and Sadducees and Zealots and then the Essenes that did remove themselves and, and 
the way that they would have, I guess, tilled the soil as it were back then is they were the gatekeepers of the scriptures. They were the ones who took the time to make sure that which had been written down would continue to be preserved for future generations. And so when we hear these stories of the young Bedouin boy who found the Dead Sea Scrolls that uh, had the, the book of Isaiah written down that was discovered in the 1940s again or wherever it was, that was part of the Essene community's job. They removed themselves from society and studied and immersed themselves and were the gatekeepers of the scriptures on behalf of the next generation. And I would say, I don't know what role uh, you have or others have in your generation, but in in a society that increasingly is becoming biblically illiterate, mm-hmm. what is the, you know, what is sort of an Essene kind of life where you can maintain what the scriptures have to say for the future generations. Clearly, John the Baptist is doing that. And clearly, then when the time was right, he was able to reference Old Testament prophecies on behalf of what was coming. It was a beautiful moment. So let me ask this gardening question to the two of you. Yeah. Um, So I remember my dad telling stories about uh, having to go out. They, They farmed in northern Indiana. And before they actually would would prepare for spring planting, like the very first thing that he and his brother had to go out and do was walk these hundreds of acres um, and remove rocks. And I could never really understood how how it was that rocks that were not there when they <laughs> right. No, so same where question. do those like? Like, right. So do gardens grow rocks? I mean, rocks seem to emerge from the soil. Are they coming up? Are they pushed up like in the freeze? Like, you know, when the when the ground freezes, is it pushing up a new layer of rocks that then you have to, you know, tilt? I don't know. We might need input from actual like farmers at some point on this show. Yeah, we, we that is such a good question because you could pick rocks one week and then the rocks would all be there again the next week. And I can't imagine somebody just chucked a bunch of rocks into the field uh, just to make your life miserable at that at that point. So where do those rocks? And, and I think at the risk of over-spiritualizing that, right, I think you could ask yourself the question, so how did those rocks in my own heart get there? I mean, that's sort of the obvious connection, except I think it's actually, uh, again, a pretty important one to wonder about. So what kind of practices, what kinds of things, what kind of ways in which do I suddenly have things that need to be picked out during this season and, uh, and, and prepared for, I don't have all the answers to that question, but, um, but I think there's a, a spiritual principle there for sure. Hmm. So a quick Google search. I yeah. have two things to add, uh, you know, John the Baptist and locusts, uh, cricket oil, I think is cricket the oil densest, like oil that you can get per meter cubed so if you're taking into account like <laughs> the land means. it takes to make oil via corn uh crickets are you know way more efficient use of, of volumetric space if you're going for oil you learned this on google in the last just minute no no, no this get, i knew before. how do you get the oil out of a cricket i was just where is the oil on the cricket probably how you get it out of like corn or anything else you dry it and grind it right uh-huh. well, like olives you throw them in an olive press and you just grind it i guess they don't have to be dried though so i have no idea Okay, so that's what he was eating. He was so you learned this about the locust crickets or whatever. Yeah, it's good yep. stuff. Yep. Uh, but uh, <laughs> apparently, there's something called the Brazil nut effect, which is granular convection. Uh, so, you know how air currents rise. Yep. Sort of based on uh, on density. Uh, you know, if you shake a bottle full of different sized rocks, they they sort themselves out, right? Like it, you always end up with the large things sort of floating. On top of the small things. And so are you saying this, getting, this relates to rocks? Yeah. So I think that maybe 
Part of the effect of rocks in the garden is, is the uh, granular convection, where the larger stones will, will tend to rise as the smaller dirt sort of gets uh-huh. wedged under, and then now they're slightly higher, and more smaller dirt sort of gets wedged under, and so large rocks rise. I don't know. I mean, that, that would seem to verify your theory, Carmen, that, you know, the earth maybe freezes or something and the rocks come out. What kind of Wikipedia are you using over there? Oh, that is, is way f- more advanced than anything I've seen. <laughs> Physics forms. Physics. Oh, yeah. Well, that would make <laughs> I can't, sense. I can't it. verify the uh, validity of this, but. Now, Carmen, you're the radio show host. How do we segue out of this conversation of permafrost rocks and convection ovens uh, yeah. to, to something that's part of the tale here? Well, so. Um, <laughs> Good luck. I can tell you. That if you live in the northeastern United States or if you live in many parts of the south where you see walls, you know, kind of short rock walls bordering lots of pieces of property. That is because that property was worked at some point in time as a small homestead or as a large, um, you know, or as a large field. And those are rocks that were taken out of those gardens or those fields over time, and they were simply carried to the edge. And that's that's why they're piled up that way. So all of the walls that you see in New England are, are uh, you know, they're garden walls. And so I do think that, you know, there's, a, there's an easy application for us in terms of um, the walls that we build, the stuff that we collect yeah. over time that's hard. And we, you know, are we just setting it up over there on the edge and are we building a wall with it or are we actually getting rid of it? And I... I think that at some point as Christians, you know, we, we need to recognize that God is seeking to actively every season, every year, till the soil of our hearts, plant the seed of his word, bring forth a harvest of righteousness unto himself. Um, and we need to not be like keeping a collection of those rocks. Like, mm-hmm. I think it's it, it's important for us to get rid of them, which which goes along with the. You know, the lesson that you're lifting up, Peter, about preparing the way of the Lord. We're not we're not holding on to those rocks. And we're going to lay them back down so that they can other people can right. stumble on them. And um, right. but we're actually getting rid of them. We are literally removing the rocks from the way. Yeah. And I think it's important to note in that, too, Carmen, that in the process of repentance to identify and turn, that doesn't then mean that you are the one that can get rid of all the rocks in your heart about that. It is simply an acknowledgement that I do have rocks, but there's actually a, a king of a kingdom who comes and is able to be the one who begins to remove those rocks from your heart. I think that's another important piece because that then prevents you from just picking them up and laying them back down when you actually give them over. This is part of that great phrase that I love from Dallas Willard when he says that there are God's redemptive resources that are ever at hand. And what does it mean to access God's ever-present redemptive resources? So as we turn and as we do want to remove those rocks during this season of time, um, to place them in the hands of the great Redeemer who does that work and who does unwind them from sort of the soil of our heart and, and make it the kind of soil again where the seeds of his life can grow. I'm wondering if um, maybe in the next portion of the show we could um, we could talk about the encounter that Jesus has with John the Baptist and then segue into a conversation about what John says about Jesus. Because, yeah. you know, John does not just prepare the way for Jesus. He then really is the one who first identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. He, you know, he is the one who who says to other people, that's the guy. Yeah, He sends his mm-hmm. own disciples, you know, mm-hmm. to follow Jesus, to, you know, to check out what he is doing. Um, there's a, and that's a, I think that's an incredibly important um, thing for us to remember. This is not about garnering disciples for ourselves. Yeah. I mean, that is not right. what the Christian life is about. It is about pointing other people to Jesus, always being the person 
who recognizes that I am saved and I would love for other people to enjoy this kind mm. of fellowship that I enjoy with Jesus. Um, but being sure that I am not in any way seeking to make a name for myself, but really making the name of Jesus famous. Yeah, I think, boy, there's a lot that can be in mind out of that conversation. It calls to mind that passage when Jesus uh, says, you know, basically, woe to you Pharisees, you travel over land and sea to create one convert to yourself. And when you do that, you make them twice as much of a son of hell as you are. <laughs> Just mm. like, these are not the mm-hmm. words of Jesus that I normally hear, right? You know, we don't hear this preach, but that is a, when you are actually making disciples of yourself, you're keeping them removed from the the very Jesus that can save. Uh, because I can't, you can't. We, and I think we live in a culture where people are consistently trying to get other people to follow how they think and what they do, what they say. There's a lot of disciple making going on in our culture, but it isn't always disciples of Jesus. And dare I say that having been a person in vocational ministry for a long period of time, um, I I can say this at least. I know the temptation for sure to have people want to follow what it is that I'm saying about the kingdom. And, uh, and, and your almost your job mm. can be a little bit dependent upon that, about whether people like you as a pastor, about whether people agree with you as a pastor. And it's a really insidious thing. Um, and very easy to do to point people towards yourself versus pointing people towards the King. And I mean, John, Again, he was given this incredible gift after 400 years of silence to speak on behalf of God in front of the people. And he so readily and easily recognized who was the true authority in that and pointed people in the right direction, realizing that he did not have those redemptive resources that Jesus offered. And so I think it's an important point uh, for sure, where even on places you know, in social media, the number of followers that you have, right, <laughs> gives you sort of a sense of definition of, of how popular or authoritative you might be. So the whole thing get mixed up pretty quick. You don't have to worry about that because you no. have like none. <laughs> I mean, but, you know, but it, it, I don't know. It's called Twitter, right? Uh, We've been through this before. I just want to make sure I've got the terms right. I, I'm taking it slow. I'm slow walking my social media account right now, Carmen. I don't want to get too popular too fast. Oh, I love it. Um, so in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, if we pick up at verse 29, it says the next day, Uh, And this is referring here to John. He saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was uh, before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be uh, revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. Um, John is clearly um, identifying Jesus. And and the gospel writer prior to this identifies, you know, Jesus as the word of God who has taken on on flesh to dwell among us. So maybe um, in the next conversation here, we could talk about the incarnation and why Jesus's coming in flesh matters and helps us understand that matter matters. Does that sound good? I love that. So let's uh, wrap up this first uh, section of The Till. You're listening to Carmen and Peter and Nat working through the incarnation up next. So stay with it. Before, Carmen, you brought up uh, the idea of the incarnation and the Gospel of John chapter 1 is a beautiful passage that talks about the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. John starts his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and all things were made. And it keeps going through there. But this idea of the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us and John uh, the Baptist being able to recognize on the spot that this was the word that has become flesh in those moments. And 
You know, the incarnation is something that I think is is probably one of the the top five, maybe most confusing sort of doctrines of the church for many in terms of how God was fully man and 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 fully uh, God or Jesus was fully man and fully God at the same time. I mean, when you wrestle around with that a little bit, Carmen, what what sort of comes to mind in all of that for you? I think there are a lot of uh, science minded people in the culture um, who operate from you know a, a, a naturalistic worldview. Yeah. Um, who don't believe in the supernatural. I mean, they believe in human beings, um, but they think we're it. And and so to suggest that you believe that there is a God of the universe and that that God of the universe would condescend to take on human flesh mm. and to be born of a Virgin Mary and and to do that intentionally, on purpose, for the express purpose of then dying as an atoning sacrifice in order that this crazy crowd of sinners mm. could then be reconciled by grace through faith. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not to tell you the, um, the, uh, from a, from a secular or humanistic or naturalistic worldview, um, that sounds bonkers. <laughs> I mean, I just, it just sounds completely crazy. And yet it's absolutely the truest of truths. It's the truest of truths. And if I if I understand that Jesus was a good person and he healed a lot of people and he um, was a good role model, but I fail to understand that he was God in the flesh, then I I can never get to the place of understanding how his death could ever be applied as a substitute for me. Like you can't get there. Yeah. You cannot get to the cross. You cannot get to the crucifixion. You certainly cannot get to the resurrection unless you start at the incarnation. You cannot have Easter without Christmas. Yeah, I think it's so well said. And, and, and the inherent skepticism of our time, that science is is sort of the best explanation for the human experience. I, a couple of things I think we can say about that and then continue to get into what you just referenced too is, is that there's this mistaken belief that we've become... Uh, the the myth of social progress, I'd call it, that we become smarter and more enlightened over time, that that really the last 2,000 years has been filled with nothing but Galileo moments where we've corrected the ills of the past. They thought it was magic, and then they went to religion, but now we know better with science. And, and I would suggest that we live much more in Josiah moments than we do in Galileo moments in the sense of all the stuff that we've forgotten about the world and the, and the misplaced trust that we put in the authority of the day, that being science. And, and you're talking to somebody who loves science, but... I was across the table from, uh, of all people, an, an astrophysicist from the University of Glasgow about a year ago, and he was sort of regaling with me with stories, kind of like Nat from the internet, where I didn't quite understand entirely what was going on, but I knew it was important. And uh, and he was saying that quantum physics has basically um, redefined all of previous scientific understanding and, in fact, has caused much of the edifices on which all of science is built to be um, questioned all the way down to the core, to the foundation of science itself, because what's happening in quantum physics basically breaks all of the laws. So, you know, quote unquote laws of how everybody thought things were supposed to work. And I asked him a question. I said, so does that mean you have to redefine all of your science curriculum at the university level here in Glasgow? And he said, well, we can't because there's been so much, um, put into so much effort and energy put into building the edifices to start with that it would cost everybody their jobs, everybody, there's too much money invested in the existing edifice that we can't let quantum physics like sort of redefine everything. And, and I say that Carmen, because I think it's important to note that uh, science is not 
again, as somebody who really likes science, I think we have to be really careful that science is not the be-all, end-all from an explanatory power. There are far more gaps in scientific thinking than what our culture would believe. And one of those gaps is, is how in the world could you put your hands on the head of a blem- of an unblemished lamb and somehow transfer the guilt that you have to that lamb through the shedding of the blood. And yet that was the common way of understanding how things work, where we're interconnected and interwoven together. Uh, even ideas of bearing each other's burdens in the biblical text was not the idea that I was just going to pray for you because I felt bad for you and somehow bear the burden. You actually could bury the uh, bear the burden of another person. And I remember just another quick story about that is um, I was with my daughter when she was about six years old and she had watched a, a terribly frightful movie and she could not fall asleep and could not fall asleep and and uh, was just terrified by what she had seen. And I felt prompted when I was praying for her that night to just put my hand on her head and her hand and my hand on her heart. And I just prayed out loud, you know, God, the fear that she has right now, um, give it to me because I think I know what to do with it. Um, and, I, you know, Carmen... I don't know what happened there exactly, but I felt a jolt of fear go right from her to me and she fell asleep in 10 seconds, completely unafraid from that moment. And so all of that is a big picture brush to say the incarnation sounds so weird to us that somebody could be fully God and fully um, human all at the same time. But that's only weird to us because we're looking backwards from a flawed scientific worldview that doesn't account for maybe how God created all of this to begin with. And if we can just create some space for the possibility that this is true, then you create space for the possibility of so many different things from there. But that's the starting point. You've got to create space for the possibility. Well, and I think it's important to note that like, science as a subject and a methodology doesn't uh, assume that we have the end-all be-all answer, right? Like there is right. space to find uh, all sorts of new stuff, right? We, we've run into quantum mechanics and, and physics and that that does change what, you know, the way we look on it. And so I feel like people take it often far too seriously to assume that, you know, the rules that we've established in our world are the end-all be-all rules when the rules that we have never really intended to say they're the end-all. Right. We haven't necessarily a reason to to believe that you know a lot of our, our fundamental theories and, and rules are wrong but there's nothing to say that we have the the final answer yeah i think that's such an important point is that science is an incredible explora- uh, exploration of what is true about what god has done in this world and, and my brother is a advanced placement biology teacher. He teaches at the university here locally as well and we i love the conversations about science but again if we get to if we become binary in our approach that science has now replaced religion as a way of understanding the world, I think we really miss the point that the two can come together. Well, I don't want to leave the subject of science um, um, too quickly because I I do think this conversation um, is the one that many young people and actually, frankly, a lot of middle-aged people yeah, are very sure. interested in having, and the church is not necessarily particularly interested in having this conversation. There, an openness to questions about uh, the relationship between w- what science thinks it knows and what uh, the Bible says about the character and reality of who God is and how he operates. Um, I do think there is a tension there, and sometimes it's more than a tension. Sometimes it's just a flat out, it's presented as a flat out contest and you either ha- you have to choose one side or the other. And I-, I think that's a false forced choice. 
Um, I think that you can be both a person who thinks critically about um, scientific discoveries and a person who accepts as true mm-hmm. um, yeah. what the Bible says about who God is and what God has done um, throughout the course of human history. I guess what I wanted to say about the incarnation um, is that if you ever wonder if you matter, if you ever wonder if you, like you, matter, the incarnation answers that question. Mm. Because, you know, you can point to the cross, and, and, and often people do this, and I think this is maybe a an unnecessary reduction of what happens at the cross, but I have heard this said. If you were the only person in all of human history to ever have needed... Yes, I've heard this too. Um, right? Salvation. Yep. Yep. You know, Jesus would have still come and died on the cross for you. Well, Jesus coming in human form, the condescending of the eternal second member of the Trinity um, to make visible the invisible God uh, for the firstborn of all creation to have become actually born in human flesh is no small miracle. It's no small thing. Um, I mean, in this one who was born of the Virgin Mary, in this one, all things that were ever created were created in him. Things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him, in him, by him, for him. I mean, that's the testimony of, of Paul in the first chapter of Colossians. This one who is born of the Virgin Mary um, is the second member of the Trinity. He is before all things, in him the, all things hold together. I mean, I... I just think that sometimes we get all caught up with the baby in the manger and we forget who it is Mm, and mm. just how much is condescended into that swaddled baby right there in, uh, you know, in Bethlehem. And so I I think that, you know, that's just maybe what I want to get people thinking about as we approach Christmas, because we're all going to have the opportunity to, you know, sing away in the manger and silent night. And um, we're all going to have an opportunity to, you know, witness um, reenactments of the, um, you know, of the natal scene. And I just don't want us to forget who that is and what is happening there. And that it's a reminder that you matter so much and that matter matters so much um, that Jesus condescended to come in order that all creation might be redeemed. Yeah, I think, I mean, you've said it beautifully at that point. And, and I, I, it was uh, just the idea that he would become flesh in that way. It, it's, um, we, you've, you and I have talked in a lot of different kind of contexts, Carmen, about just what a definition of love is in our culture. And so I think just to even see God's love through this lens helps us redefine what love is supposed to be. And you're, you're asking the question, do I matter? It teaches us so much that we matter because love, if, if love in our culture is this idea that I approve of or endorse all of who you are. And so then the opposite of that is that I hate or whatever it is. Uh, love defined in the scriptures is that you have a tenderhearted affection for somebody. And because of that tenderhearted affection, you are willing to suffer the loss and to condescend and to give up all of your rights and to let go of all of what you think it matters to you so that the other person can be made whole. And you do that in an unconditional way. You're not looking for a return. You're not looking for some, for some kind of transaction here. And so when God loves and when his kingdom is that which pulsates with his love, it makes sense and it doesn't make sense to us that a God would do that. And he's so different than any other God of that day 
that would have done that. But when God is is being manifested in love, it means that he has a tenderhearted affection for all of his children, and he's willing to then give up all of the rights and, and reality of what makes him divine in order to condescend and come among us so that he can then bear the sins of the world in that way. And, and it's an important message, I think, at this time that that incarnation matters because we matter, and that's why the word became flesh. I'm wondering um, if, as we're having a conversation about the first coming of Christ, you know, either of you are thinking about the second coming. Well, yeah, for sure. Uh, we talked about it last week, so it's still been on my mind. Uh, and and more to that effect, in my hands, I'm holding the script to a Christmas Carol, uh, to which I read through last night. It's an adaptation by Jacob Wright. So we have the. Uh, rights to this. Okay. And uh, we're producing a radio drama tomorrow. <laughs> and 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 going through the 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 sort of Christmas future past and present uh did did bring to mind I realize this is barely tangentially related. Uh but did bring to mind sort of we're looking back on our past Christmases and reflecting and building up to this through the Advent season, but also looking forward into the future into our second coming. And trying to prep in a way that uh, through these Christmas conversations we can, you know, look forward like John the Baptist, uh, you know, live in a way that does generate uh, questions. Yeah, I think uh, we talked about this with my kids uh, just a couple days ago when we kicked off Advent on Sunday. And um, one of the things we've talked about at length in terms of uh, recognizing and trying to raise our kids not with a fatalistic understanding, but a realistic understanding of our world, that our world is broken. Our world is lost. Uh, Before Jesus came and before that star appeared in Bethlehem, it talks about the people, and and Isaiah references, the people were walking in darkness, and now they've seen a great light. And those dwelling in this land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. And and, in the world, Jesus came and he did break the powers of sin and death in this world, but it was just the start of the process. It wasn't the end of the process. The world still is uh, at least according to Paul, in this present darkness, there still is a darkness. So the world is broken. The world is lost. And so we, we talk to our kids, don't expect to try to squeeze a sense of peace and shalom and harmony and all of what your heart desires out of the realities of this world, because the world is not prepared to be able to provide you that. Uh, and thus, then it creates the space for the second coming is that there is in this world a promise that we're giving that we can tether ourselves to Jesus in this world. And in so doing, we then be able to be led by the spirit on behalf of the future. And so the future actually comes crashing in, at least in part in our present, as we're inhabited by God's spirit, walking out life as strangers in the strange land. So to me, Carmen, when you asked that about the second coming and the Advent piece of it, we're still in a time of waiting. Our waiting's different than the waiting of Israel in that uh, there has been a finality of death being beaten and so there is a life that is present among us. And so I think that's where these some of these passages like out of Corinthians that though, um, or maybe it's, mm, you'll have to tell me where it is, but about our inner man that is being renewed day by day, though our outer man is decaying. That's again, part of this now not yet tension in which we live as we await for the second coming and that advent where everything will finally be set right uh, and the healing of the nations will begin at that point. I think that every time um, we enter into this season, I'm, and I know we're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks or maybe even next week. Um, I'm, I'm aware of the people who are no longer here among us. And 
um, you know, the empty chairs that, yeah. uh, that we have in our lives now, holidays seem to, you know, t- seem to bring that up. Um, I was, I was thinking in relationship to just how consequential a life John the Baptist lived. And I recognize he's totally unique in all of human history. There's never going to be another guy like that. There doesn't need to be another guy like that. I mean, Jesus, you know, Jesus only needed one, one prepare the way guy that time around. And now he has all of us. So we can all be preparing the way for the second coming. I like that phrase, by the way, Carmen, I'm going to use that the prepare the way guy. I like, (laughs) I like that a lot. Okay. Keep going. That was great. So, um, uh, but this question of, you know, have I lived a consequential life? Mm. Um, you know, I don't know. You know, you get to a certain age and you start asking that question. There's more runway yeah. behind me than there is in front of me in yep. terms of the years of opportunity left to, you know, to be a person of influence, to make an impact, to reach people for Christ, to advance the kingdom. I mean, what, however you want to like view and frame how you're going to measure the consequence of your life. And I think that for some people, they are trying to measure their life in um, in ways that the world measures things. And they are going to be so sad mm. that that's, you know, that they thought they could just heap it all up in barns or bank accounts or, you know, that dollar signs was going to be the measure of it or or whatever, something other than um, that which lasts forever. So I guess I'm wondering when you guys think about a consequential life, living a life of consequence, what comes to mind? Well, to start with, uh, the question uh, you sort of posed, you know, when, when there's more runway behind you than ahead of you, uh, you, I have this question all the time, right? And hopefully, <laughs> I, I'm hoping this means I still have more runway ahead of me than behind. <laughs> uh, but, like, it's hard not yeah. to, I, you know, it's something I, I ask, you know, on a fairly daily basis, you know, what, what does constitute a, uh, a meaningful, you know, sort of life that, that builds up for something you know, something that lasts, something that, that that has purpose and meaning. Yeah, I think what I run into is that I, I recognize, Carmen, that the horizons of opportunity have become far narrower at this season of life than maybe when I was 20 or 22 or 23, where I thought I can try to do this and I can maybe go that and I can do this. And, you know, I got lots of time to to sort of sort things out and stuff. And I think what I'm experiencing in that, it's profound that you are already asking these questions at that age. That's not um, terribly common about what it means to live. And most people your age, I think are like, so I just, I need to get a job <laughs> I need to, and, and you do. And I get all of that and stuff, but I will say for now, you know, let's say I only have 20, 30 years left. Uh, I have no idea. Maybe I have 20, 30 minutes for, for all I know. I get it. Not the, the next hour is not promised to any of us, but what do I, where do I want to invest and, and what do I want to do? Because there just is a limited runway ahead. And, and it's funny, Carmen, you asked the question now, because just this uh, morning, I sent my parents and my wife a text. My wife, Hallie's overseas. My parents uh, overseas. My parents are close by. But I was listening to Andrew Peterson's song, The Sower Song, which is all about what we're sowing in the present on behalf of the future. And uh, it answers the question for me because I, I had parents that when I, th- and I have parents, they're still alive. When I think about a consequential life, one of the amazing manifestations of that was uh, my mom, when she was retiring, she said, you know what? I'm not going to do all the travel thing, though she traveled. I'm not going to do the retirement thing all about me, though I'm retired. Um, she said, I will be here and I will help you raise your children insofar as 
that is that I'm able to do that. And for 20 years, she has taken our kids every single Tuesday for the most part wow. and uh, and has been an incredible presence in their life when a lot of her friends were out doing their own thing. And my dad, when it was time for him to quote unquote retire, he said, you know, God, I've got the last quarter of my life. Uh, I don't want to retire. What do you have left for me to do in this life? And this is a guy that barely, I'm, I'm sure he cheated his way through high school just to get his diploma, <laughs> never went to university and uh, didn't have all of the fancy letters and credentials after his name. What is he doing now? Some 15 years after praying that prayer, he's translating the Bible to hundreds of thousands of people in Africa wow. and traveling all over the continent doing that kind of work. And so consequential life, I, I don't know how it all has to look, but I think it starts with the question God, what do you have in front of me? Because I will say yes to what you have in front of me and trust God for the consequences on that. So what I'm hearing is that comfort is not your end goal. Because what I have in front of me right now is you with your legs up in the studio. I do. Back. Yeah, I am. I am. My legs are on the desk right now. No, this would not be the proper posture, perhaps, of, of a disciple. Jesus did say that, you know, if you're going to follow the Son of Man, uh, foxes have holes and something has dens or whatever they all have. But the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. Mm-hmm. And I just find it fascinating how how often we think that in following God, we're also going to have a comfortable life when it's almost exactly the opposite. There is nothing comfortable about my dad at 76 years old, dragging himself out of bed yet again and traveling through these these rutted roads in the backwoods of Africa, sleeping who knows where uh, all of that time and God using him for that. So even though he has no comfort, he has a, a purpose then, right? He does. Yeah, he absolutely does. Carmen, we've got about a minute left. How would you uh, answer the question and wrap us up? Um, I'm, I'm reminded of um, the funeral of Barbara Bush, where mm. her um, her biographer, John Meacham, described her as a person who had lived a consequential life. And Barbara Bush is not a person who um, ever in her entire life earned a paycheck. Yeah. Mm. Um, but, you know, we certainly recognize that her husband would not have been the president of the United States, nor would her son have been the president of the United States you know, nor would her the generations that now rose up to call her blessed at her um, at her funeral, or you know, the fact that she destigmatized AIDS for all of us mm-hmm. when she laid hold of that uh, AIDS infected baby and you know picked mm-hmm. it up and hugged it and kissed it, yeah. right? So I'm just saying, like in terms of the consequential life, sometimes it can be an act done in public that is just an act of mercy, and it literally changes hearts and minds about something. Yeah, totally agree. Well, I appreciate the conversation you guys here on the second week of Advent. Looking forward to the next couple of weeks as we prepare for uh, Christmas coming up. Thanks for joining us again this week on The Till.